Amoti lechem in haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, amotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. When all I see is the battle, you see my You see the mountain move And as I walk through the shadow Your love surrounds me There's nothing to fear now For I am safe with you So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees With my hands lifted high Oh God, the battle belongs to you Every fear, lay at your feet I sing through the night Oh God, the battle belongs to you Against the power of our God, 
Shabbat Shalom. If you would, uh, turn in your Bibles for this Shabbat to uh, Genesis chapter 37. Our portion this week is Vayeshev, and um, the, our story is now shifting from Jacob and is now going to shift to the children of Jacob, the sons of Jacob, and things that will be happening with them. Um, and let me just begin reading here at the very beginning of the chapter where it says, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Now, as I pointed out to you before, there's earlier verses that talks about these are the generations of Isaac and whenever these are the generations of Adam. Whenever the Bible says that, that's Moses' way of saying to you that I, this part of the story I'm going to tell you is not so much about the person Jacob, or as he mentioned in the other ones, not so much about Isaac, but the generations of, meaning the descendants, meaning those that came forth from this man. And so this title says, these are the generations of Jacob. Obviously, we're going to talk about the children of Jacob, and we're going to talk about their children. Um, 
whenever you are speaking to another person and somebody asks you, well, tell me about the generations of you, well, you talk about your mother, your father, your grandfather, your grandmother, you talk about your children, your grandchildren. You know, in, other words, in other words, you're looking at the, the levels of generations of you and your life because, you know, quite honestly, your life is just not you. You are a product of what your parents and grandparents basically put into you, whether you realize or not or want to admit it, it, your first days of your station in your life was as a direct result of either the blessings or the curses that you got from your mother and your father. If your father was a good provider, then you were provided well. If he wasn't a good provider, you weren't provided well. If, uh, if your previous generation had uh, different kinds of diseases and genetic things, you, you got a chance to get some of those. And so you're a product, you're a result of that previous. Well, guess what? You pass that on. Depending on how you decide to live your life, the impact is going to be upon your children and upon their children. Uh, the Lord says that one of the things about his judgments is that the guilty don't go unjudged, that, that God will carry out the punishment all the way to the third and possibly fourth generation. In other words, the things that come into your life and so forth, they'll spread down. Uh, from the standpoint of being mature about this whole thing, it ought to just scare the daylights out of you that, that it's not just you are doing something ill to yourself. You may be impacting your children and your grandchildren as a result of that. And certainly making the decision in your life to follow the Lord, not only is to your benefit for your eternal fire insurance, but it has a tremendous impact on your children and your grandchildren having the testimony of faith. So part, that's part of what this statement is about, is it's reminding us that Jacob, where he came from, and then who comes from Jacob. And so with that opening, it now is going to immediately start talking about the children of Jacob, and they are now going to come center stage in this Genesis account for us of what happened. Um, with that said, let's look at the rest of verse 2. It says, Joseph, when 17 years of age was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with his sons Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age and made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms." Then, all right, let me stop there. Again, w the point that I was making to you is how a father or a mother behaves toward the children has an impact as well. And in this particular case, it says that Joseph favored, or, or excuse me, Jacob favored Joseph. Can I just do a sidebar here for a moment? Every year, the editor that has to edit the program when I teach this portion always has to rearrange the Jacobs and the Josephs because they're in some court. Of, I will get those confused. I'll get them transposed. So I, I apologized to the audio editor right now. Okay. I'm going to try to keep it as straight as I possibly can. Uh, I think Jacob is the father. Joseph is the son. We'll, we'll go with that. All right. Uh, so what we're told 
is that Joseph has a little bit of a favored status. Now, we don't know really how much it was favored, but we do know this. There was a tunic, a special gift, that was made by Jacob, that was given to Joseph. And this multicolored tunic, what it would have indicated is that not only does Jacob favor him now, but that Jacob intends to favor him more in the future. In fact, when it comes to some of the inheritance, he may intend to like offer to him uh, the inheritance of the firstborn. If you remember, Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel, his beloved. Okay, so he looked upon him in a much different way than he looked on his other children that came by the handmaids or by Leah because it was for Rachel that he labored and Joseph is her firstborn. So the union of her, Joseph is the product of that and he clearly has a motivation toward that as far as loving him. Um, let me pose a question to you right off the bat. Let's, let's, let's uh, have a rhetorical kind of discussion here for a moment. Was that appropriate for Joseph to do that? I mean, is it appropriate for a parent to, for whatever reason, to show favor to a particular child when there are other siblings? Uh, take the case of a blended family where you have um, a father who fathered some children and married a wife and she has her children uh, and they come together, is it appropriate or is there some sort of rule out there that says a father and a mother, a parent, is not permitted to show special esteem or aid or help uh, to one of their children? Does he have to treat everybody equal and fair? And let's go ahead and just be real honest about that. There is no such rule. There is no rule. And in every family, uh, while parents will basically say to you that they love all of their children, the fact of the matter is if they truly love all of their children, they also see their children as unique persons. And they, uh, they, they have a relationship with that unique person. They don't always make everything equal. Um, now, what happens is sometimes if that's pronounced and it's blatantly obvious that it's going on, it will produce, I'm sure you've heard the term before, it produces something called a sibling rivalry. Okay, other siblings resent good things that have been done. Um, not necessarily bad things done to them, but good things that were done to somebody else. And it goes to fundamentally, it, it brings into question their soul, what is the basis of, of uh, goodness and, uh, you know, for that. Um, by the way, the reason I mention this is because the Messiah dealt with this question. He talked about a master. Um, who hired some people to work in the field early in the day and they went out and worked and he hired some people later on in the day and he put them to work and he, when they come back he ends up paying the same amount for the later workers who didn't work as long or as hard as the other. It was a daily wage and he gave the same daily wage to the guy that came in later 
and didn't work as much as the, the guy. And the people who had worked the whole day, they resented that and challenged why he had done that. It wasn't they were challenging that they weren't paid fairly. It's that they were challenging, why are you doing good to this other person? And the Messiah rebuffed them and said, you know, you have no reason to complain because you received exactly what you agreed to and what I decide to do with someone else separate from you, that's my business, not your business. And he clearly taught that. Now the reason he taught that is because there was a certain degree of resentment on the part of the Jewish people in his day who had been following the God of Israel been part of the temple service, faithfully serving there, and all of a sudden, as a result of the work of the Messiah, the redemption, redemption is now extended to all people, and all of a sudden, people who had been non-religious and had been scum of the earth, you know, as far as the, the religious people were, all of a sudden, they're getting saved, and they get the same eternal life and the same benefits and the same blessings from God that the faithful who had been there all along, and he's dealing with a question about, I'm the master, and if I want to bring you into the kingdom, that's my decision to do so, and I will bless whom I want to bless, and I am not subject to your judgment on your set of balanced scales about what is right and wrong and what I should or should not do toward doing good. I'll remind everybody that the Apostle James also made this very specific statement. It's not sin to do good. If you choose to do good to another person, to a child, and others observing it, you know, look down their noses and don't like the fact that you have done good, that's their mistake not the one who was doing good. And in fact, it brings into question as to whether or not, where is your heart at in terms of loving the brethren? Where's your heart at in terms of doing that? Some people, um, giving has to be done publicly. But I know some of the best givers I've ever seen, they don't do it publicly. They do it privately. Do it quietly. And part of the reason they do it is because they've learned this thing about human nature that other people will scrutinize it and complain. Um, when this ministry, Lion and Lamb Ministries, first began in the first years, one of the things that we committed ourselves to doing was specifically being involved with the Israeli believers in the land of Israel and wanting to minister and bless them. In fact, the very first trip I ever made to Israel, we carried over monies and resources specifically to give to Israeli believers to help them with their needs and encourage them um, in their faith. And we had to be very, very careful. Uh, I wasn't real careful. I didn't understand this dynamic very well because the first year we gave a considerable amount of resources and monies to some believers in the land. And it wasn't all spread out. In other words, we chose some particular ones that we got to know and we helped them. Well, the word got out that they had received help from it. You wouldn't believe the letters I got from believers in the land of Israel who told me I'd done a wrong thing. 
and that I gave it to the wrong people. And there were others uh, that were, quote, more deserving, or that guy doesn't deserve it, or whatever. And one of the things that I found out that uh, over there, and this is also true in the Messianic movement, you know, uh, there's enough need to go around that if you flop something out there, uh, you know, like um, throwing bird seed out, um, you'll start the biggest fight amongst the chickens you've ever seen in your life. People all of a sudden get upset uh, because so-and-so got more than me and, blah, and so forth. I consider the whole thing to be sheer nonsense. So when I read this passage here about Jacob and the way he treated Joseph, I, I want to be real honest with you. I don't see one thing wrong with what he did. That was Jacob's decision to make. He can bless whom he wants to bless. He can in, uh, share with whomever he wishes. It's his decision to make. And I don't believe that he should be subject to any second guessing by anybody else, including his other descendants, as well as the commentary coming from uh, the people that would be reviewing this study. Because I have discovered that in life, those same issues exist right here today. And that what we should be teaching is that when you see someone, a, a brother, a, a somebody in the faith, somebody you have a relationship with, that you're part of the same community, when the Lord has done good to them, well, that you should rejoice with them. You shouldn't sit back and be resentful that they, they, got, they got something you didn't get. Um, that's a hard lesson. Let me just tell you, that is a hard lesson. But it's a very important spiritual lesson. Learn to be content with what you have. Let God, if he wants to bless you, let him lift you up. You don't have to go and cry to somebody about not being fair. Or resent others because of something that has happened there. That's a very important spiritual lesson. And it comes out of here. As a result of what's going to, the, the brethren of Joseph are going to be incentivized to do harm. Let me just go ahead and be real upfront with it. Whatever Joseph did is not justification for what his brethren did to Joseph. And if you resent others, it is not justification for you to do harm to others because you know, you're trying to balance the scales out somehow in your distorted way of thinking through on things. Now, uh, that's about what I'm going to say about this. I'm certain that every one of you inside of your minds, you're going through history that's happened in your family, things that may be happening right now in your family. You go ahead and let the Lord sort out and the Holy Spirit help you <laughs> have a, a clear mind on how to uh, react and respond to the brethren. But if you are feeling led to do good to someone, do not hesitate because you're fearful of what others might think. If you want to do good, do good. You know, bless, increase. And uh, when the others ask you about it, tell them, wait your turn. You know, maybe the Lord will get around to you, you know. But this is what I wanted to do at this time, and so forth for it. Listen, I, uh, one, one last word on this. You know, being in a ministry where we help people, sometimes we help people and it works out great. And they, they change, they move on. Sometimes we help people and they just took advantage of it and it didn't help them a bit. Uh, but we're still going to help people. 
we're still going to minister and try to do the best we can uh, with them. Unless there's something extremely overt, you know, that blocks it from happening. We're, we're going to try to do good if we have the capability to do it. But that's what Peter said. He said, such as I have, I freely give. Such as we have. If I don't have it, then I can't give it. But if I've got it and, and you need it to help you, I'll, I'll help you. That is what we're taught in the faith. That is the expression of the Messiah. By the way, you do know that the Messiah's um, uh, gift that he made to us, not one of us deserved it. Not one of us. Okay, but he still did it. He still provided redemption for us. So he set a pretty good standard on how we should be doing good to others. So with that said, <clears throat> now Joseph is going to start having some interaction with the Lord. The Lord is going to begin to show his relationship with Joseph. And I don't know that the other brothers had uh, dreams with the Lord or other activity. What is recorded for us is what the Lord did with Joseph. So beginning at verse 5, it says, Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now here's a case, one, they hated him to begin with because his father made some judgments to do good to Joseph. They're going to hate him more when his heavenly father decides to do something good with him. By the way, that's not justification for hating anybody. They are clearly in the wrong in that case. And he said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you actually really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Let me, uh, because I come from Kansas, and I did work the wheat harvest as a kid, and I know a little something about it. Uh, let me tell you, the, give you a little better illustration of what this word picture is. In the older days, before we had stream driven and, and um, power um, farming tools, with, such as combine, combiners and so forth, when they would gather and harvest the grain, they would go out with a big um, sickle. And they would swing the sickle and it would you know, go through the wheat and it would cut it off low to the ground. And so what you'd have is the, the straw um, stack and then you'd have the head of wheat. And then others would come along and gather those up and they would bind them. They would make a big stack of it. And they would set them upright. And the reason why they set them upright is because it's going to be some time before they gather those out of the field. And they don't want it laying flat where the head of the grain will get down toward the dirt. If the head of the grain gets down toward the dirt and it rains on it, for example, it starts to start seeding again. I mean, you start growing another wheat plant again. Uh, so they got to keep it away from the ground. So the idea is you bind these things and you get a puffy thing at the bottom and all the wheat heads up and you stack them. And, um, and a, good, uh, a good guy doing this can get these, st these sheaves to stand up on the ground. That way, when they came in to gather the harvest, 
and to do, uh, um, to harvest it, to actually knock the, the grain out of the head, well, it was easy to grab these things, and you knew exactly where they were at in the field. They're not laying down flat, so you don't, you know, you don't miss any. Um, and these are called, these, these stands are called shocks. That's the actual name. They're called wheat shocks. Because what they're going to do is they're going to take these things and they're going to put them in a thrashing machine or in the old days they would take them and they would beat them against a hard surface, knock the grain out of the head. They would shock the wheat and knock the grain out. So they're called wheat shocks. Um, and they're not, you don't shuck grain, you shock grain. <laughs> I remember as a kid we had a uh, we had a black and white TV back in those days. Down in Wichita, Kansas, there was the one TV station. By the way, when they did the news and the weather, there was one guy sitting in front of a desk with a flat background, and he would stand in front of a black and white camera. Do you remember those days? And the weatherman, he would stand on a map, and they would have to have two maps, you know, one for the state and one for the national thing. And he would say, it's warm over here, it's low over here. You know, they, you know it was real sophisticated stuff. I remember they got a new weatherman that came in there in Wichita one time. And um, he referred to shuck and wheat and immediately angered every Kansas farmer. <laughs> and he was fired the next day. They sent him back to Nebraska where they shuck corn. But down here in Kansas, we shock wheat. Well, uh, I only want to give you the illustration that when Joseph used this illustration, there's a lot that goes into that. And basically what he was saying was this that my sheaf stands up straight, very stable. Yours, on the other hand, falls. You, you bow, you fall. Yours won't stand up straight, it falls over. The wind didn't make it fall over, it just it didn't have enough, it just fell over on its own. And so he's equating this harvesting of grain you know, to this comparison of him and his siblings. And they immediately understood what it meant. They immediately knew that he's saying in his dream, and dreams have a prophetic element, he's saying he has a dream that he will stand up above them and they will all fall before him. And of course, that's the question they're asking. Are you actually going to reign over us? In other words, do you believe that dream has told you that that's what you're going to be doing with us? Well, Joseph doesn't really answer the question. He's so excited about just telling about the dream. He's not understanding the implications of the dream or the profundity of what it has to do with the future. Now, later, when he's the viceroy of Egypt and his brethren come to buy grain, then it says he's going to remember the dream. But at the time that he's speaking with him, the reason why he's sharing the dream is because, quite honestly, he's 17 years old. He's not thinking at all about the future. He's thinking about right now. By the way, let me tell you something about 17-year-olds. They can only think about right now. <laughs> they think about what they're doing today and what they're going to do this weekend. That's as far as it goes. They don't even think how to get through the end of the school year. They can't think of how to get through the end of college or some training program. They're just trying to figure out what they're doing right now. And so his exuberance of the fact that he's received something from the Lord that he's encouraged by, he shares this openly with him without understanding that one, that group, that audience resents him, hates him already, and that they're just going to use that as more evidence against him. 
uh, to hate him even more. Now, that's the first dream, because Joseph is going to have two dreams. As it goes on, it says, verse 9, Now he had still another dream, and related it to his brothers, and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, the dream, the vision that he had was, and this is the way Jacob interpreted it, and Jacob very easily figured it out. The stars were the brothers. J uh, Joseph is a star. His brothers are stars. But the father is the sun. That's Jacob. His mother is the moon. By the, by the way, the lunar element <clears throat> has a lot to do with the feminine qualities uh, of a female person. And to a mother or a wife. You know, I won't get into the details, but suffice it to say... It's a simple uh, symbol that's well understood, has been well understood for going back to ancient times. And Jacob understands that. And so that's the reason why I asked the question, do you think I, the sun, are going to bow down to a st the star? You think the moon is going to bow down to the star? In other words, the symbology. Uh, and again, it is the same issue that somehow Joseph in the future is going to have authority over all of them. Even Jacob doesn't quite understand this. But it does say the following. It says that he kept the saying in mind. There's one other uh, scripture that is similar to this. And that is when it came to the subject of the birth of the Messiah. And that um, it said of Mary and the parents that when they got word, also they kept the saying in mind. And basically what it means is, is I don't know how that's going to work out, but I'm not going to completely dismiss the thought. I'm not going to repel the thought. I'm just going to kind of let it set there, and we'll see what happens. I'll keep the saying in mind, and we'll see how things pan out. And if it, if it pans out correctly, then that was part of it. I, I understand that. So, Jacob is keeping his options open, so to speak, here. Now, put yourself in the shoes of Jacob at this point. He, Joseph is a beloved son. It's the firstborn of his beloved Rachel. Um, and, and so he wants to do good to him. It's his intention to give him the blessing, the birthright blessing. It's very clear. He intends to give him the birthright blessing just as he got it from Isaac, his father, in lieu of Esau. In, and Esau got it, or excuse me, Isaac got it in, in lieu of Ishmael from Abraham. So he's already planning who the blessing is going to go to. He's going to give it to Joseph, and he's already telegraphing it. And the other brethren know that. And they sense it, and they resent it. Uh, they don't like it. And, uh, but this is clearly what's happening. And then on top of that, then there seems to be this confirmation God starts talking to Joseph by way of dreams, telling him that he has a most excellent future that is completely consistent 
with what it means to receive the birthright blessing. Because the birthright blessing is the best of the best. The best, the ruling over, not being ruled uh, over by them, by someone else, but they rule over. And um, so he, he understands the implications of this. So with that in mind, we're now going to shift gears. This is the, this is the stage that's now set between Joseph and his brothers. They are jealous of him. Jacob is keeping it all in mind. Now let's see what's going to be happening to the life of Joseph, who has this favoritism of his father, this destiny from the Lord, what is going to take place. The very next verse is uh, verse 12 of chapter 37, which says, Then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock in Shechem. I love this verse. And uh, by the way, this is a huge Bible trivia question for you. Let me give you the answer to this right now. Where is the first verse that we find in the sequence of the Bible of the story of redemption? And the verse that I just read to you is the answer. This is the first verse to the story of redemption. When you and I keep the feast of redemption, when you and I keep the Passover, and we're going to be drinking the cup of redemption, during the cup of instruction, the second cup of the Passover, where you teach your children all about the Passover, the story about the exodus out of Egypt begins first with Joseph. Why is that? Because Joseph will become the first person enslaved in, in Egypt. What follows in the generations after was as a result of what happened to the life of Joseph. And Joseph is the one who's going to be bringing his father and all of his brothers and their families down into Egypt. That's how they will get into Egypt before the exodus ever takes place. It will be because of the events that took place with Joseph. Now, Joseph is going to tell you later on that the reason why he went to Egypt was not because his brothers hated him and not because this certain man directed him to go to Dothan when he couldn't find him in Shechem. He is going to specifically say that God orchestrated the whole thing. That God purposed for Joseph to go to Egypt to preserve the lives of his brothers and to preserve the life of Jacob and his family. Now, with that said, that's essentially the same thing. When we talk about redemption, I don't know if you've ever really thought about this, but if someone is going to receive redemption, then someone else has to plan for that. Let's say that you're stuck somewhere and somebody's going to come and redeem you out of that situation. Somebody has to see your situation and come up with a plan on how to get you out of that situation, how to redeem you out of that. And what we're now being told, and Joseph is the first one to explain it to us, that the plan of redemption originates with God. It didn't originate with the idea of some man. That God purposed Joseph to go down to set up and prepare for the redemption that was going to be coming to those that are descendants of Jacob, to all of Israel, called the children of Israel, will be redeemed. And God is already working on this plan of redemption. 
part of the plan of redemption is that the father has to send a son. By the way, does that sound reminiscent of the, of the re redemption that we all testify to? In fact, Yeshua said that the key to believing in God's redemption is to believe that the Father sent him so that you would have eternal life. And, um, and that believing in God who sent his son is crucial. So in other words, you believe in God's redemption. So here's the pattern being set right now. That redemption is based on a father sending his son to see to the welfare of the brethren and to the flock. Now, we also know that the term for all of us is being the flock of the Father. Um, if you look at the very next verse, well, actually it's in the same verse, then his brothers went to pasture their father's flock uh, in Shechem. Actually, in the Hebrew, there's no word there that says father. Some Bible versions will say, uh, sent the brethren to, uh, then his brothers uh, went to pasture Jacob's flock. Some versions will say Jacob's flock. I actually put that in there. There's no, there's no word for Jacob in there. The translators have concluded that the flock that's being referred to belongs to the family of Jacob, to Jacob himself and to his family. It was Jacob who brought his flock from Laban, so it must be Jacob's flock, and it also belongs to the brethren. They have some of they tend to it too. So it's their family, it's their flock. So that, that's the reason why they give it in it. Let me tell you what actually in the Hebrew it actually says. It says, Then his brothers went to pasture the Aleph Tav flock. Now, if you've heard uh, previous messianic teachings, you know the two letters Aleph Tav, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet is a very specific kind of code word that's referring to the Messiah. <clears throat> the Messiah himself said, I'm the first and the last. And he didn't say, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. He did not refer to the Greek alphabet. He said, I'm the Aleph and the Top. Because for years, millennia in fact, the sages of Israel have gone around asking the question, who or what is the Aleph Tav? Because there's multiple places where this happens in the scripture. In fact, this is one of 14 specific places that sages of Israel asked the question, who or what is the Olive Tav here? One of the more famous ones where you find it is in the prophet Zechariah, chapter 10, where it says, and they will look upon him whom they pierced. There's no word for him or whom. It simply says, literally, they will look upon Olive Tav they pierced. A very direct reference to the crucifixion of Yeshua of Nazareth. And so the relationship of Aleph Tav ties directly back in, directly to the Messiah. By the way, um, this is going to sound kind of Christianish, but if I break those two letters down, Aleph and Tav, it literally means, if you break the letter deriva uh, derivation down to the strength of the cross. Hmm, that would preach on Sunday, wouldn't that? Yeah. Well, that's the actual meaning of it. So I submit to you that the flock that's really being referred to is the Messiah's flock. And we all give testimony we're part of the Messiah's flock. 
So the story of redemption is about the father sending the son to tend to and care for the Messiah's flock. The flock that belongs to him. Maybe that's the reason why the Messiah refers to himself as the good shepherd. Or and others refer to him as the great shepherd. Um, and it all ties back into it. Now, if that wasn't enough, then add the following. Over the top, and this is written in every Torah scroll, and if you get a humash, which is the Hebrew text coming out of the Torah scroll for you to study as a Bible a Torah study book, you will discover that over the letters Aleph and Tav, the scribes put two dots. And this is one of the first place where we see the first use of what's called the jots. There's only four places in the Torah that the jots are given. This is the first. And that connects this verse and this great teaching of the story of redemption to the other three locations for another expanded teaching of the Torah. These are scribal marks specifically put in to remind the scribes when they teach the scripture, make sure you teach these elements. Well, let me just cut to the chase on that and just tell you very simply that the last place where the jots are at is in Deuteronomy chapter 29, and I believe it's verse 29. And the jots are put above the words uh, to your sons forever. And that verse ties into chapter 30 because the very next verses are chapter 30. And guess what that's about? That's Moses talking to the last generation, the generation that will go into the kingdom. That will be the final exodus. That will be the final redemption. So here's the first verse of redemption, and it goes all the way to the final redemption. And in fact, in Judaism, when they teach about the future, they teach of the final redemption. This is the redemption from Egypt, but the final redemption is the one that involves the Messiah. From the very beginning from the very beginning of the story of redemption, the Messiah is involved. It is the story of the Messiah doing the redemption. Doing good to whom he chooses. Uh, going back to the earlier lesson, that uh, the point that I made in this portion, what do you think the Messiah is going to do if some of the demons and the devils say at judgment, well, you're not being fair. Um, you saved all those people, but those people didn't get saved. They all go to eternal judgment. You weren't being fair. How do you think he's going to deal with that question? I guarantee you that the demons and the devils don't have a leg to stand on. The decisions and the things that are being done here are righteous and just and true. And that argument coming against him about fairness and all that other business is nonsense. And it's distorted thinking. It's like the nature of the questions the devil asked Yeshua when he was being tempted before he started his public ministry. The devil is wrong in his thinking, wrong-headed, is, is, does not understand properly. The Messiah does and is rendering a true and proper judgment in all of these matters. It's a lesson to us. That's what we're trying to learn to do. To in all matters render good and true judgments on all things to not fall prey to the logic of of those that would distort truth and justice uh, you know from us
Now, um, with that said, we have an incredible um, verse here. Um, we have the Olive Top present. We have the jots that are present. This is the start of the story of redemption. Uh, when we recount the Passover throughout all of the millennia and generations, we start teaching our children from this point about the story of Joseph going down into Egypt. And so this is the story of how redemption is going to get going. Let me read just a little bit further. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. This dynamic here is crucial. I'm, the father is sending him. The son is responding with, I will go. One of the things that used to irritate the religious leaders more than anything else that Yeshua did in fact, it didn't even irritate him that bad when he criticized them. You know, preferring their traditions over the commandments. That, that didn't really offend them that much. They agreed with that. <laughs> um, what really offended them was when he would say to them, my father sent me. Because that's a direct reference back to this verse. That's a direct reference saying to the religious leaders, the fulfillment of of your understanding of the story of redemption that originates in this, I'm that fulfillment. I'm the one that was sent. And by the way, my father sent me, and I said, I will go. And I'm here now. So this entire transaction between the father and the son, he is saying, that was all agreed to in heaven before I ever came down here. By the way, I want to uh, just let that kind of soak in your heart, in your mind, just a little bit. Our Heavenly Father asked, you know, the Messiah, the Son of God, I'm going to send you down there to save those people. And the Messiah, without hesitation, said, I will go. Didn't have to be talked into it. Didn't have to offer him reward or incentive to get him to do it. His will was completely committed to what the Father wanted to do, and he came and do to our benefit. Not to his benefit, to our benefit. And to me, that is something that if I can grasp and get that deep in my soul, that clears up a lot of things with me. It, it cleans things up and simplifies what should be my spirit toward the Lord if the Lord asks me something. That there shouldn't be any hesitation. There shouldn't be any further dialogue. Well, what do you do for me, Lord? I mean, what, what about this? What about that? No. If you say you want it, Lord, that's what I want to do too. And that's the, the example that we have for us from the Messiah. Joseph sets the example. He, Joseph is a picture and a type of the Messiah for us. A very powerful type of the Messiah. In fact, at the end of this book, when um, Jacob is, is sharing blessings and so forth, Jacob is going to elevate the two sons of Joseph. His two sons are going to come up to the rank of him with his fellow brethren. And, and they will be called tribes equal with the other, the other brothers as tribes. So what did that do with Joseph? What, as a result of his sons being elevated in the position, what did that do with Joseph? That lifted him forever above the rank of all of his brothers. And that's the picture of the Messiah. 
He is raised amongst the countrymen, but God lifts him up above all of the countrymen. That this is the doings of the Lord. This isn't the choice that he made. He didn't strive for this. This is what the the Lord himself has done uh, for us. And for those who would resent the Messiah being in the elevated position, they would have resented what Jacob was doing with Joseph to begin with. Which goes back to my argument. Is there a valid argument against Joseph for what he's planning on doing? Because if you say there is, that he shouldn't have done what it is, then God shouldn't have done what he did sending the Messiah for you. Because you didn't deserve it. Should have treated you all fair and equal. By the way, if God treats you all fair and equal, we all die. The only reason why we live is because God is just, not because he's fair and equal. The only reason why he lives is because he's just, and then he provides the redemption so they can answer his justice, so that we get to live. So we want God to be just, not fair. We want him to have the redemption, provide the redemption, not be fair. We want righteousness to prevail, not social justice to prevail. The, uh, have you seen recently, just a side commentary, I've seen recently the college students that are all complaining on the campus, the University of Missouri is one example, all complaining about that they need a safe zone and they, they, um, you know, they should be given a free college education and so forth. And finally, some university professor has finally uh, spoken up on that. I'm surprised we don't have any other adults in the academic world to basically dress them down and give them that conversation that should have taken place between their father and their mother and them way back when they were younger about, you know, just because you were born in the world doesn't mean you're in charge. And um, just because you're a member of the family doesn't mean you get to run the family or dictate to the family or tell the family what can and what can't happen. Same thing happens as you become a young adult. You cannot go out in the world and tell the world this is what the world's going to have to do. You know, deal with me. You're going to have to deal with me because I don't like you. Sorry, the world doesn't work that way. doesn't work that way. It's a fantasy that they think it's happening. And to tell you the truth, I, I feel very sorry. I'm seriously about it. I feel sorry for these kids going to school that are in this thinking. I, because I'm, I'm, not, I'm not speaking this as a prophet, but let me go ahead and say something prophetic. Their lives are going to be a perpetual walking disaster because they don't understand how to live with other people. And they're just going to crash through life. It'll just be like a constant train wreck for them because they haven't figured out how to live with themselves or live with other people. Um, Going back again to some of the Torah lessons are to teach us how to live with one another, how to be in a community of faith, how to get along. And one of the keys to getting along real well is to remember you're not God. Somebody else is God. And that you're one of the brethren. Um, and to, to be mindful of that so you can get along with other people. All right. Uh, let me go a little bit further with this part here about the start of redemption because there's one other point I want to share that's just extremely powerful here. Verse 14, then he said to him, go now and see about the welfare of your brethren, the welfare of the flock. Bring word back to me. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now, if you're reading from um, a Jewish publication society, if you're reading from a Tanakh, it will say, so he sent him from the vale 
of Hebron. I'm not sure what your other versions uh, specifically say. I think most of them say valley. Um, the Hebrew word there is the word emek. And this is a very, very interesting Hebrew word. By the way, let me go ahead and just tell you, Hebron is a mountain and there is no valley of Hebron. There is no valley. It's a mountain. It's on the Judean mountains is where it's at. There is no valley of Hebron. So what, what is being said here? The sages have always said that this is a very special word in this placement. Because the word we translate as a valley, it means a very deep place. Now, when you're standing up and you look into a, a deep valley, why, that's the, that's the word picture they're trying to give to you. You're looking into something deep that's in front of you, a deep valley. And with that comes the connotation, uh, the emotional overtone, that there's a mystery there. There's something deep there. Well, from a spiritual standpoint, it's like a blinking neon light in the midst of an environment in which there's no other light. So if you're out traveling and it's all dark everywhere, and all of a sudden you see a blinking neon light over there, it immediately commands your attention. And immediately the first thing you say is, what's that? What is over there? Because that's what it's doing here in the scripture. What is the valley or the mystery of Hebron that is being referred to? And really what it is, is it the deep mystery that ties back into the redemption. This is a story about a, a particular father and a particular son, and we're talking about taking care of sheep. But the deeper part of this story is about a heavenly father sending the Son of God to do the work of redemption for the whole world, which is the flock of God. And he will have to pay a price. Let me go ahead and tell you what further happens in the story here very quickly. Joseph is going to be cast into a pit. But he's going to come up out of the pit. And through a series of circumstances, he is going to become in charge of the world. And Yeshua, the Messiah came to do the work of redemption, and he knew full well what the cost was going to be because he had to be put in a pit, a burial pit. And he came up out of the burial pit. Now, it's been a while, just like the brethren waited for a while before they ever saw Joseph again. But the next time they see Joseph will be just like us. The next time we see Yeshua, he's in charge of the entire universe just like Joseph was entire in charge of all of Egypt, you know, for their world. Those patterns are very clearly here. That's part of the understanding of what is this deep mystery? What is this story really about? And the scripture is giving us that blinking light with the word emek to draw that out, to get us to think of that and consider it. Uh, in preparation for this Torah portion, I was rereading again uh, much of the Jewish commentary on this. And it's just fascinating to me that the sages of Israel, the, the, the big Torah scholars of Judaism, 
have, will repeat to you exactly what I've said about the word Emek and about the valley and about the deep mystery. And they'll talk about how this is the start of the story of redemption and this is what this is really about. I mean, they'll, they'll all tell you that. And yet, they can't get it that this was God's plan to send his own son just like Jacob sent his son and that's how redemption would work for us. They just, they dismiss it. And yet they know that this word of mech means, and they teach that it has a deeper mystery, a deeper meaning, that there's more to this story than, but they never answer the question and say, well, what is the deeper story? What is the mystery? They just admit there is a mystery and there is a deep meaning. But they never are able to answer the question, you know, for it. Now here's the irony, and you've heard me talk about this before. My Jewish brethren can see the stuff setting up the Messiah. But they don't believe in the Messiah. My Christian brethren who believe in the Messiah haven't got the foggiest idea what these verses are about. And they believe in the Messiah. And yet they see no value in learning this or understanding this as to what God purposed for them. They just... We've all announced that we believe in the Messiah and that's all we have to do. We don't need to know anything else. It's almost like I got my fire insurance. Uh, don't, don't confuse me with any facts. Kind of thing. But I got, I got news for them. And this is, should be scary to them. Yeshua said that you have to believe that the Father sent me to believe in me. You can't just go around rattling off my name and saying you believe in me. You know, specifically, he warned in Matthew chapter 7, not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord, will be entering the kingdom of heaven. And they're going to rattle off all kinds of religious stuff that they have done in the name of the Messiah, and it still won't qualify for them to be in the kingdom. It goes back to, did you believe that the Father sent him, and that that's the redemption that came from God for you? Are you trusting in God's redemption? and the work of the Messiah to accomplish the redemption? Or are you just trying to take the shortcut and just say the right buzzwords and that somehow gets you, you know, like you go up to the back door and you go, what's the password? Messiah. Okay, good, you can come in. Now, now when, that's not how you get in heaven. That is not how you get in the kingdom. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Um, there has to be a, a true change of heart, a regeneration within your soul. There has to be, you have to be made in the image of God instead of the image of man. You have to, your sins have to be truly forgiven. You know, a lot of things have to happen. And the Messiah is the one who accomplishes this thing. So you've got to make sure that you've done that which the Messiah has called upon for you to receive that redemption, trust truly in him uh, for that. Now, I add the words in the final verses of Matthew, or, or John, I should say, chapter 5, where the Messiah specifically challenges us on this passage of Scripture and says, if you do not believe the words of Moses that he wrote, how will you believe my words? And I'm saying to my Christian friends, if you may be listening to this teaching, I'm not denying that you don't name the Messiah. My question is, because the Messiah asked this question, how in the world do you believe in the words of the Messiah when you refuse to believe what Moses has said about him? If you deny Moses, 
then you yourself are undercutting your own testimony before God. And this is according to the standards that the Messiah said and the Messiah set. Not me. I didn't, I didn't set these standards up. This is what the Messiah said about this. The redemption that we believe in in the Messiah originates from this teaching. It is not apart or separate from this teaching. Thus, let me repeat my words again. Where are the first verses of the story of redemption? Genesis chapter 37, beginning at verse 12. I view these as some of the most profound words that we have in Scripture. If you can begin to understand the pattern, the Father sending the Son, and, and the clues that we have here that the scribes have given to us to draw our attention to it, I believe that you're on the path now to understanding many other spiritual truths, to see the other patterns, to, see, to be able to interpret prophecies to be able to compare what did the prophets say and what did Yeshua do and to be able to draw the two together and see them in perspective but failing to learn how to understand what is the prophecy what is the pattern that's set before you have no basis to say why you believe that Yeshua is the Messiah what you're usually doing is just repeating what other people have said and you have discovered that if you say that, it will be accepted by the other people you want to be a part of. What's really tragic is that everybody's passing around the same um, club password, but it's just a club. It's not changed lives. Uh, to prove my point, and this is what I've shared with other audiences before, if you aren't really tapped into what the Lord really has in store, in other words, the real faith in him and so forth, then why is it that you don't have the victory, spiritual victory in your life? Why is it that you call upon the name of the Lord and things don't happen to your, that, that you requested him when he has promised to do answer you? Why is it that things don't work out for you? Why is it that you don't sense the blessings why is it you think you're just normal and like everybody else, there's nothing special about, and, and you keep repeating the words and the phrases and the buzzwords and you keep hanging out with the same people who keep saying the same. Why is it your faith is not working? Well, I submit to you, it's not because the faith doesn't work. My question is, what do you have faith in? And if you have faith in other people or your previous family or the church you go to, you got your faith in the wrong thing because that doesn't work. The faith I'm talking about is begins with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the promises that God gave to them that are extended down to the descendants and until you see that you're part of that line and part of those promises and part of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then you are not even in the position to understand and receive the Messiah, who by the way is the promise that was given to the fathers. If you get into the promises of the fathers that God gave to him, you receive the Messiah. You cannot get the Messiah apart from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It just doesn't work that way. And this portion is one of those that emphasizes that under the banner of the talking about redemption. 
Now, what follows in this portion, I only have a few minutes left here. What follows in this portion is that uh, Joseph now goes out to seek out his brethren to do that which his, uh, his uh, father uh, dispatched him to do. And he goes to Shechem and he doesn't find him. But he runs into somebody. Now, we don't get a lot of information on who this fellow is. Let me just go ahead and read it to you. Um, so, he, verse 14. Go now and see about the welfare of your brothers and the welfare of the flock. Bring me backwards. So, he sent him to the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him, and behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, what are you looking for? He said, I am looking for my brothers. Please tell me where they are pasturing the flock. Then the man said, They have moved from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph, Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now this is real interesting. This is a, a little conversation between Joseph and some other guy that we don't know who it is. And this other man gives him crucial information. It's absolutely imperative that Joseph has this information to send him on the path to get with his brothers and get with the flock for all of the other resulting events. Now, let me tell you what uh, most commentators try to do with this. They refer to this as an example of uh, providence. That it was providential that Joseph ran into this guy and oh it was providential that guy just happened to know some information had overheard something being said and he passed the information on it was like it's it, it, instead of saying happenstance they said it was providential happenstance is just something random um, and we have a lot of people in the faith that link what we call happenstance and providence into spiritual subjects. For example, like this. Of Joseph being directed properly to where the, his brethren are at is some sort of providential thing. Now, for most of us, we look back on our own lives. If, if you do a little self-assessment, you have two ways you can look at what has happened to you. You could say, well, providentially, I went and did these things, and then that set the stage. I was in the right place at the right time for this to happen, and then I went and did that, and then this other good thing happened, and that's when I met my wife, and, and then we got married, and, and then we moved over here, and I got this good job there, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, 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 and you present it like it's providential. That's just kind of how the chips fell. But if you're a spiritual person, you don't do that. You see, a spiritual person looks back on their past and they remember that God has been looking out for me. And God has been guiding my steps. God made promises to me that he would increase me and bless me and do good to me. And I look back and I realize that, a lot, that, that God was guiding me through the tough times, the good times, and, and all the blessings, wherever they came from, and however it worked out, that was the Lord had laid the path out for me, and he guided me, and he's, he's the one that helped me to go do it. In fact, throughout the course of our life, when we come to decision points, what do we always ask? I wonder what God's will is for me to do. 
That's a spiritual person. It's not providential. I mean, if it was providential, it's a coin flip. Got a quarter here, you know, the old heads and tails thing. Well, should I take that job or take that job? Well, let's go heads that job, tails that job. Let's flip. Okay. That's providence. You know what the Muslims believe in? Fate. Muslims believe if something happens, that was Allah's will. Now, that's not what I'm talking about. That's fate. And we don't believe in fate, and we don't believe in providence. We believe that even though I don't fully understand what has transpired, that I believe God was involved with me, and God tipped the scales, he guided me, he led me, he was there with me the whole time. Now, I look back at my life, and it's my testimony to you. I, in fact, if I had the time, I would go through and I would tell you all the things that happened in my life, and I could tell you the part where God got involved. I bet you could do something similar. Where God, you knew God was involved at that point. You had a conversation with God at that point. Something, something told you. It wasn't providence. It wasn't happenstance, and it certainly wasn't fate. Now, the question is... Joseph shows up here and this guy shows up and gives him exactly the precise information to put him on the path and sends him immediately on the path. Now, was that providence? Was that fate? Was that happenstance? Or do you think there is a possibility that might be God involved directly in his life, sending him where he needs to go? Now, Judaism thinks this was the angel Gabriel which is a very honorable thing. Gabriel's come and helped a lot of people at various times. But personally, I think it was somebody even more powerful and prestigious than angel Gabriel. Let me tell you why. Since we're talking about the story of redemption and now everything is shifting to the subject of what the Messiah was going to be doing, what do you think the possibility is that the Messiah was standing there and directed Joseph to do the right thing? And I can't, of course, prove it absolutely, but I will do this. I'll bet you this, um, this 25 cents right now that when we get in the kingdom, we'll all go up to the Messiah and we'll say, you know that guy that met Joseph and sent Joseph on his path? I have a bet with the rest of the world that it was you, Lord, that did that. And you know what? I'm very confident that you all are going to lose that bet and I'm going to have a lot of quarters. I don't know what I'll do with them in the kingdom, but I, I will win. Because I believe this is a manifestation of the Messiah uh, in the affairs of the life of Joseph. Amen? All right. Well, uh, as you know, the rest of the story here is, is that the brethren see him coming when he hooks up with them in Dothan. By the way, Dothan means two pits. And this place does exist in the land of Israel. And, and uh, they're, they're cisterns. They catch water and they use them for... But in the dry part of this year where they, they don't have water. And what typically will happen in those pits is snakes will fall in them. And we believe that when Joseph was cast down in there, it was probably a pit full of snakes. And that part of his dismay and his crying out and so forth and fear of being in the pit was because those are dangerous to fall into. In fact... In that region of the land, 
there are many of these hollow points, these sinkhole points. Shepherds, to this day, do not allow their sheep to walk on the open ground. They put them in confined corrals because their sheep fall in these pits and then they die as a result of the injury of falling as well as the number of snakes who then bite them and kill them. So they put uh, Joseph down in one of these pits that was terrible, a terrible thing. No wonder he cried and, and wept. But in any case, he's going to come out of the pit. He's going to get sold to Egypt. And as a result, Joseph will become the first slave going into Egypt, which begins the story of the slavery of uh, Egypt, and ultimately his brethren will come down, and generations later, they'll all be enslaved in Egypt, waiting for the Lord to send Moses and Aaron for them to be brought up out of the land. Amen? All right. Well, that's what I wanted to share with you out of this portion. I hope it was a blessing to you. Please, cl let's close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this Torah portion. We thank you, Lord, for the story of the life of Joseph, a great messianic story that's for us. Many patterns we see, Lord, that tie directly back into the work that the Messiah has done for us, the very patterns of his life, being raised up from among his countrymen, rejected by his countrymen, going into a pit, coming out of a pit, and ultimately becoming in charge of the world. We look forward to the day, Lord, when just as Joseph was revealed to the brethren, we look forward to the day when Yeshua is revealed to all the brethren and that we'll all know who's in charge of the universe. And that will be a good and great day, Lord. We look forward to it. Thank you for the Torah. Thank you for our congregation, our faith. Thank you for our redemption. And I ask, Lord, that you'd pour out a blessing upon your people this Sabbath day um, as we enjoy the Torah together. In Yeshua's name, amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.